This show is brought to you by Buzzsprout, the best and excitingly prettiest way to start a podcast. Chapter 11 Mystery Guest Part 3 I don't think I'm gonna go to L.A. anymore. I don't think I'm gonna go to L.A. anymore. I almost know what it's like to die and turn up at your door. But I don't think I'm gonna go to L.A. anymore. I'm not gonna fear here. You freeze up when you're burning clear. No, never fear here, cause you'll die if she sees you. You'll die if she doesn't see you there. Or feel you there. It's gonna stay, gonna stay in the grey. Stay. All the shining nights they say never mind, never mind. The invisible lines, they say, never mind. The moonrise says, you see this all the time, never mind. No, never you mind. Five. Lana Law was staring out of her grandmother's living room window in Willowbrook, Los Angeles, almost 20 miles due south of Johnny Marrick's destination at the Silver Lake Reservoir. The wet street below her reflected the sky's saddening hue, and the strong wind continuously drove pedestrians into establishments that they clearly hadn't intended to enter. Occasionally, the corners of Lana's mouth would twitch in an attempt of a smile whenever a pedestrian would enter the expensive jewelers opposite her grandmother's building. Lana Law didn't know a great deal about life, but she was beginning to learn that there were certain types of people that were welcomed into jewel stores and given special treatment, one-time deals and offers, while others were pretty much immediately accused of attempted robbery. Lana had pondered before on the notion of laughter, the kind that was expected of someone of a slightly higher status, and had come to the conclusion that cracking a smile whenever a coloured person, perhaps ostensibly hoping to shelter themselves from the worst of the storm, and perhaps browse the goods to pass the time, then having their hopes dashed by the threat of arrest, wasn't something that she found funny. She had just attempted the laugh because most of the beings on the street below, that matched her personal hue, were doing the same, if not pointing, occasionally clawing, made them look like monsters. That had been the ever-present theme, enveloping Lana's thoughts, ever since the sudden death of her father. A theme of a monstrous kind that threatened to engulf her whole world. Or had. It also seemed as if she hadn't seen the sun for a while, or as if it was hiding behind a new kind of cloud that would never blow over. One that God had cast into being above his precious city of angels, as if her father's untimely demise was so horrible and unjustified that God viewed it as the final straw, seeing fit to take the sun away until every resident repented for their sins. The eight-year-old only partially remembered the last time she had seen her father, because she had been half asleep at the time, 
Dad's work had tended to run into the night quite often, and although he wasn't around to tuck her in on most nights, a tradition was started by which her father would enter the apartment as quietly as he could, attempting to organize himself in advance of the next working day, and be ultimately startled by the sudden appearance of his tiny brunette beauty, with her rosy cheeks and bright eyes, standing there in the pitch black, her stuffed bunny bear dangling affectionately from her arms. Lana's brown eyes were almost glowing, turning them a strange mixture of orange and yellow. They illuminated Theo's pallid, stress-lined face and his terrified blue eyes. On the first night this occurred, Daddy had jumped in surprise, nearly screaming his way out of his skin, loud enough for some of the neighbors to hear and spark a single light source in sleepy confusion. During the conversation at breakfast the next morning, Daddy would remark on how he hadn't heard a thing, not even a creaking floorboard, and there had been no lights on, just dead silence in the darkness with Lana standing still at the center of it. Lana noticed that her father said nothing to Mother Lacey about their daughter's eyes. Lana had felt them burning inside her own skull, yet no pain emerged alongside the sensation. Her eyes, much to her father's noticeable relief, had seemed to return to normal by breakfast time. Theo still regarded her with a strange sense of apprehension, cutting the hello and goodbye hugs down to a mere couple of seconds each. Clearly Theo feared what Lana may have seen in his eyes that first night, and intermittently in the nights thereafter, her burning stare perhaps probing hidden thoughts that Theo didn't realize that he would have to push to the back, because she wouldn't understand them. She's just a kid, right? I'm safe. But Theodore Law was not safe. That much would become clear. As time went forward and these late nights continued, Lana began to notice her father looking at her with sudden alarm in his eyes whenever he would catch her staring at him while he was doing paperwork or while on an early morning work call. The way he would close and package the police reports in a kind of way that preceded necessity, or the sudden level of anger whenever he noticed that Lana or even her mother had been in earshot while certain private conversations were taking place. The job that daddy does is dangerous. Protecting people can be dangerous. He just wants to make sure that we're safe too. Lana had nodded at this before turning and pretending to go to sleep, her mother processing her daughter's blunt style of communication in the form of a slightly exasperated sigh, as she always did. Good night, my little rosebud, her mother had said, and upon hearing the telltale click of her closing bedroom door, Lana had shot up in bed, immediately heading for the window to wait for her father, a nightly tradition she had started since she had first lurked on him in the dark. However, on the thirteenth night, after around three hours and forty minutes of staring and hoping, a near-deafening explosion sounded. However, Lana saw no smoke, no fire, no sleepy surrounding light sources or concerned neighbors running outside. The noise was short and sharp, but its echoed aftermath seemed to continue forever, and brought with it a ringing sound that made Lana's head hurt. It was the kind of noise that you would have heard from miles away and yet there seemed to be no reaction from anyone except Lana. She screamed, but even that sound only seemed to be a rasping wheeze. She retreated back into bed in the kind of automated way people do on a midnight return trip from the bathroom. Lana had laid down, her bright brown eyes almost illuminating the magnolia ceiling above her, and began to breathe steadily, attempting to block out the sound, gripping her stuffed bunny bear with all the tightness she could muster. The sound began to fade as her quickened heart began to finally slow, and blurred images of shining red began to fill her thoughts, though these images did not frighten her. In fact, they relaxed her, 
gave her peace and solace despite their grotesque nature, liquid trickling on cold, unforgiving ground. A hand twitching, a missing face. The comfort she found in these unbidden images caused her to stretch her limbs, the fatigue washing over her in an awesome wave. Before Lana drifted off, she heard herself say, Ave ad That night, of course, was the night her father, Theodore Law, never came home again. The memories and confusion of that night were all that had occupied Lana's mind, not least when she learned in the later hours of the day that followed that her father had been murdered on duty. Those blurred images now clearer in Lana's mind. Now, a month on, her father now buried. The confusion had mutated into a bright, angry pain. Lana hadn't presently noticed that her teeth were clenched until the window pane before her began to crack, the epicenter seeming to match the point at which Lana stared. Her fists were also clenched, her toes curled to the point of cramp, and the rain outside her window began to turn black, as if oil was raining down from that accursed cloud. The window pane continued to shatter as Lana stared, as it seemed did several of the lives being lived in the vessels outside her window. One by one people began to collapse, some lying still as if their very life force was ripped from them, some shaking violently as if being held down by some invisible force, one that was far too strong. The people unaffected, and there were some, began to run or attempt to tend to the ones that were, either out of kindness or obligation. Lana began to cry as more blurred red images crawled into her mind. Like the first set, Lana couldn't quite make out what they were. However, she did know that these images were giving her the exact opposite reaction to the first ones. As Lana cried harder, the images began to morph together, making them less clear but somehow infinitely more horrifying. Lana began to scream, although this time it was a full, powerful, piercing cry, followed by these words. The same three words that she had sleepily murmured on the night of her father's death. Only now, they came out louder than the insanity taking place outside her window. The struggling sidewalk-bound victims, the ones still conscious anyway, began to cover their ears, as did the ones who were running scared, and the ones who were attempting to help the ones affected. The shattering window finally smashed, breaking the last sound barrier between Lana Law and the rest of Willowbrook. It seemed everyone in close enough proximity heard the words, although when they came out, they sounded delicate, yet vile, the loudest whisper in the world. Ave Atke Six. Hunter gave Johnny Merrick a better chase than I'm betting either of them had expected. Down Bancroft Avenue, then right onto Earl Street. It was there that Johnny nearly lost him, then another right onto Alessandro Way. Thanks to a collision with a passing mailman, Johnny Merrick managed to close the gap between himself and the kid. Although it seemed the boy was eager to get away, he didn't seem too bothered about being caught. In fact, he looked downright pleased. That's quite a run you gave me there, kid, Merrick said. Slightly breathless, but attempting not to show it, he stared at the boy. There was something about him. Sure, Marek saw that he was black, 
but he didn't have the air of a street kid. His trousers were stripy, a common pajama pattern, and his raincoat was drenched, yet underused. Shouldn't you be at home? What were you doing hiding in the bushes? I, I wasn't hiding, sir. Detective, sir, I... He thought fast. I just wanted to see what Superman had left behind. Superman, huh? Mark thought for a moment. You find anything? No, sir. What about Superman? When'd you see him? Last night, outside my window. You live around here? What's your name? Hunter McCarthy. And, yes, sir, in an apartment on Teviot Street. It seemed the detective wasn't as scary as his legs had made him out to be, and Hunter could feel himself beginning to relax. The detective's fedora was askew on his head. It looked well-worn to Hunter. It looked important to him. Just like his daddy's prized musical instruments. My daddy has a hat like yours. Does he now? What about your mom? Mom's dead. I... I'm sorry to hear that. The detective's voice had grown softer. She was killed. Eight years ago. I don't remember much. My dad sure does, though. She was? The detective seemed to think about this for a while. Did we catch him? I don't think so, sir. Hunter lowered his head slowly. Johnny let out a shameful sigh, guessing that it would have been an open and shut. He attempted to change the subject. Well, hey, you tell me as much as you can about last night. Maybe we'll be able to catch this one. You're the only witness as far as I know. Could be a big help. I can give you a hand with your case full of notes? Uh, sure, Johnny said, unevenly. Come on, let's head back. My colleagues are probably wondering where I ran off to. After we're done, I'd like to talk to your father, too. What's he do? He plays trombone in a jazz bar? He's probably still sleeping. Is that right? Marek mused, retrieving his notebook from his pocket and scribbling. He felt a tug at his trench coat. Yeah, kid. Wanna race? Last thing I need is an... Marek stopped himself, never having been comfortable with racial slurs. A kid like you, showing me off in front of the entire department. They both began to laugh and Hunter began to mime warming up for a race. Around them, other pedestrians and drivers of passing cars seemed to study the boy and the detective with the corners of their eyes. Not least are the black people who themselves were mostly staring at the boy. Maybe it was because he was still wearing pajamas. Johnny got more information out of Hunter on the walk back to Teviot Street. Apparently, whoever had dumped the car had been in formal dress, a white shirt from what he could see, and black pants and shoes. He could also make out that the man was Caucasian, quite tall, with dark hair and rolled up sleeves. The strength, the sheer will, the anger. Hunter had seen him throw the car into the lake. There was more than one thing wrong with this picture, but there was something he was missing. Something. At that moment, with a simple turn of his head, Johnny Marrick's world seemed to slide out from under him. What he saw, he didn't seem to understand on a surface level. But on a deeper one, Johnny had an idea what he found himself staring at, wobbly-legged and suddenly sweating heavily, was somehow familiar. Across the street, the sidewalk was mobbed with human traffic, each vessel with their own places to go and to belong. That, however, didn't seem to be immediately important either. It was the almost synchronized, musical fashion with which they all seemed to be navigating through life. At a glance, the people on the opposite side seemed to look unique from each other, and they were, but a rumble of thunder under a darkening sky seemed to change that in the time it would take to cross over to them. Suddenly, like tin men and women, their synchronous steps became a little too accurate. 
Now it seemed as if those on the opposite side were doing a perverse rendition of the funeral march. This made Johnny think of those he had lost in his regiment. All of them were good soldiers and good men, but all with similar enough purposes and destinations, not different enough for any of them to feel important to themselves. Perfect cannon fodder for mindless killers. Johnny tried to turn his head away and look at Hunter, who himself seemed to be staring intently upwards in the direction of his balcony, but found that he could only see Hunter in his peripheral vision. Johnny was still focused on the crowd and what seemed to be forming in the middle of it. The crowd was still painted grey, however there were colours brewing in the centre that began to form the shape of someone Johnny recognised. The grey crowd were passing through her like she wasn't there, and Johnny could see that she was almost transparent like a ghost, but seemed to appear more vibrant than those around her that were actually living. Johnny opened his mouth to call out to her, to demand why she was out on her own and how the hell she had got here, but nothing came out before she spoke over him raising her arms and pointing at what Johnny could guess was either Hunter or what Hunter was looking at. Lana Law spoke words, seemingly electrifying enough that Johnny could finally move. Ave atke valet. One hundred feet above, Detective Robin Marrick, the present detective out of time, sat on Hunter's balcony, swinging his legs over the side. He lit a cigarette and smoked thoughtfully, the crime scene now examined and behind him, yet forced in front of his eyes for the foreseeable future. The investigation took place in the little time Robin and I had between Hunter leaving his apartment to investigate the crowd opposite the building and his return journey with Johnny. During that time, we split and tended to our strengths. Robin began searching Hunter's apartment, looking for any connection between Caesar and Lacey. What he found hadn't been what he had expected. In what Robin assumed was Caesar's study, which he also used as a music practice room, hidden under some old photographs was a scrapbook containing newspaper articles mostly relating to drug-bust killings, mostly made by administrative vice. The book began with a small half-page article about the murder of a black woman near the end of 1946. After that, a few pages worth of articles all covering the Black Dahlia murders in 1947. Some of the ink on the small inaugural article was slightly smudged, and the page directly after it was blank as were the next two pages, before the articles on Elizabeth Short began. It was the drug bus articles that took up the rest of the book, all the way to the end, and ran in chronological order from the late 40s up until three weeks and three days before this day in 1955. You were an informant, weren't you? Robin said to himself under his breath. He stole a glance at his surroundings, taking in the high ceilings, thick, bright white plaster walls, and the general surrounding coziness. A good one. Guys like you tend to be retired pretty fast, yet you lasted nearly ten years. Robin turned back to the smaller half-page article. He focused his eyes and leaned in closer, wishing he had picked up a pair of those virtual augmentation goggles that would have made attempting to read the finer details of an old newspaper article from the 40s a much easier task. The article stated that the woman had been mutilated by her attacker, her face and body slashed from ear to ear and head to toe. The author of the article theorized that the woman had possibly attempted a mugging out of desperation after failing to sell her body to nighttime wanderers, and that whoever had been unfortunate enough to have to defend themselves against such a creature may have got just a little bit carried away during the altercation. The article followed that no witnesses had come forward to offer any details, and made no mention of any ongoing investigation to catch those responsible, but closed with something that brought a prickling tear to Robin's right eye. The smudging mostly began near the bottom of the half-page article. Robin could just make out the words, 
body claimed Huzz and Melissa. Robin laid the book down on the desk, shaking his head slowly. She was your wife, Robin said, addressing Caesar, still feeling him in the room. Robin touched a finger to the small article at the beginning of the scrapbook, his breaths almost a growl. And they did nothing. Another growl. And then... Robin gripped the pages that separated the article about Melissa and the beginning of Short's press coverage, flicking back and forth between them. That must have been around the time you turned, Robin said softly. He said this to Caesar with no disrespect whatsoever. Robin could feel that Caesar's becoming an informant was a means to an end. The man wanted answers, wanted to know what really happened to his wife that night, and why nothing had been done, aside from the mere generational excuse of him not being Caucasian. An excuse built on nothing but ignorance, stupidity, and fear. Before leaving the study, Robin had a further search through Caesar's possessions, knowing that the clock was ticking. Music was obviously Caesar's passion, and above all, how he coped with his pain. There were pieces of notation paper littering the floors and covering the walls at eye level. The window was on the opposite wall to the desk, and it was open slightly. Below it, Robin made out blood spatter patterns on the floor and a few drops leading up to the wall with a final smear on the window's border. Robin frowned, making notes in his mind. He looked to his left. A neat line of trombone and trumpet hard cases were lined against the opposite wall, and above them was a beautiful painting of someone who possessed a beauty like no other. Whoever painted that must have also loved Melissa McCarthy with all their heart, and Robin found himself staring at her intently. I myself remained in Caesar's bedroom, levitating beside his body attempting to probe him for anything that could give us some kind of insight and, above all else, locate his soul. Feeling Robin at my back, and not least his eager energy mixed with a tingling taste for justice, I spoke before he was able to. Do you know the old and apparently Roman superstition, Tweety Bird, that the eye of a dead person is said to retain the image of the last thing it saw? I've heard the story, yeah. Requires mere cognitive reactivation and gentle stimulation, I said now floating directly over Caesar's body, investigating the balcony-side bedroom wall. The plaster was cracked from impact, and dried blood ran down the wall and mutated into a general smudge before the smudge became the newly crimson floor below the wall's stained skirting. White skirting dyed pink from diluted blood. I remained airborne to avoid the blood on the floor, sourced from the victim's head. The blow to the head, however, was not the cause of death, not according to the puncture wounds on the victim's neck, almost vampiric in nature, but that didn't seem right. I found- I know what you found, Tweets. Didn't we just have this conversation? I guess we did. We know at least parts of Caesar's story, and I may have found something other than my upcoming Romany experiment that proves the link to Lacey Law, but that still doesn't explain how, other than the head injury, Caesar was completely drained of blood, and nor does it explain where our killer found the strength to throw a car into the Silver Lake Reservoir. You said you found something else? Ah, yes. These. Now floating back by the victim's side, almost leaning against the wall that shared itself with a bedroom door, I flick my wrist and click my fingers. On the other side of Caesar's double bed, some lingerie rose up from the floor, as if it was being modelled by a floating invisible woman. Huh, Robin said. Seems our punctured friend had company for the night and going by my admittedly secondary but no less thorough investigation of the victim's bedsheets and nightstands, I would wager that there were two people in this bed, 
of differing genders on multiple occasions. And it wasn't his wife, obviously. She died nearly a decade ago. It's not unusual for a man to have found some new company after all that time. Robin sounded defensive. Indeed not, detective. However, these are Lacey's size and style, if Johnny's stories from Theo down the years are to be taken seriously. My smile widened, not to mention his hidden memories. Wait, what do you mean, hidden memories? Robin asked, moving closer to me. I chose not to meet his eye. All in good time, tweets. I finally stood, opening the balcony door. How about a smoke, detective? Robin sighed in frustration. What about the whole Roman thing you were talking about? Oh. Yeah, I'm gonna need Hunter's help with that. So, you talked to him yet? I asked, now perched beside him, smoking something that did not hail from this planet or time zone. Uncle Johnny? No, not yet. Got here a few days early, you know, to get the lay of the land. Noted a few places he likes to frequent. Got a room at a hotel down the street from his apartment. <laughs> Felt strange. Like I was... Watching yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Robin exhaled. He continued to watch his uncle and Hunter make their way down Teviot Street below us. They both seemed to stop. Johnny was staring at the opposite side of the street, at a moving, bustling crowd. Hunter was doing the same. Perhaps Uncle Johnny had spotted someone he knew. I was now leaning against a dampened wall, inches to the right of the balcony door, burning a hole, an only somewhat metaphorical hole, in the back of Robin's head. I could tell he could feel it too, and was letting it burn as he stared, because it was easier than looking back at what we were both turned away from, something that caused the eyes on the back and indeed the front of my head to become bloodshot from a certain kind of exhaustion, caused me to feebly step to the right of the hanging balcony door and use the wall that my head was resting on to block the view. Well, I sighed, attempting to shake the creeping feeling that was traveling up my sinking spine to no avail. If you're done looking in the long-distance mirror, we're gonna have to deal with this. I needlessly jetted my head, and as I did so, Robin exhaled the final draw of his unfiltered high-five parliament cigarette and swung his legs back over to the balcony's apartment side, regarding the carnage beyond the ruined door that gave way to the bedroom belonging to Hunter's father and the dead body on the floor. Hunter's gonna freak out. Who's gonna break the news? I'll do that, Robin said. You'll give the kid nightmares. Ouch. I meant with your creepy stories. Your face looks somewhat presentable for 1955. Thank you. Never hurts to compliment once in a while. I know. Rita taught me that. Well, it's not like what she had before you could be classed as an equal opportunity relationship. That will never cease being true. I saw Robin's ears prick up when the sound of the building's opening main door began to travel upwards. During this stretch, time itself seemed slow. I caught Robin's bulging eye turning to lock with mine during this melting moment. My mischievous grin fixed and permanent, infuriating Robin further. The sound of the main door's creak as it drew to a close seemed to be the only thing that granted Robin any physical motion at all, and so, when the clicking latch finally echoed, louder, I think, than either of us were expecting, creating a near-aggressive shockwave of passage that nearly caused Robin to sprint as he broke free of a prison that was as memorable as it was temporary. Although I had been focusing on how annoyed Robin seemed by my resting witch face, 
there had in fact been a great deal of cognitive exertion going on behind those glowering eyes. Namely, how the two of them would explain their presence to a grieving resident and an uninitiated member of mid-20th century law enforcement. Robin was only beginning to learn about the significance of his heritage, but one thing that he had learned, and one thing that seemed to be continuously reinforced by those around him, was that his family members, the male ones anyway, tended to exhibit traits and abilities that were invisible to the naked eye. That fact itself can be interpreted in a number of ways, but for our purposes here, it refers to the Marek's ability to adapt to what's around them, use it to their advantage, and proceed accordingly. It was the main reason why Robin had been able to handle the transition from cop to monster catcher and killer better than most others that were ordered to the front line of the Dark Pale Crisis. He only hoped that his grandfather had been the one to pass that trait down to him. Who knows, I teased. Perhaps it'll be the other way around. Get out of my head, Robin snapped, closing the door to the master bedroom in my face, attempting it seemed to hide me and Caesar away from the rest of the world, muttering an incantation in the form of an exasperated sigh. I stepped through the doorway, though it was still firmly closed. Stop ghosting, Robin snapped. They'll be here any second. The point is to ease them in? Fine, fine. You do the talking. Me? Well, me, I just get to stand here and look pretty. Thresholds symbolize many things. My thresholds can be used to step from one universe to another in a literal sense. One small step, one giant leap. And although Johnny and Hunter's simple small steps over the threshold of Caesar McCarthy's apartment didn't necessarily represent a literal shifting of dimensions, it seemed a different kind of transcendence of a similar family occurred within both of them one of adaptation and adjustment. I was proud of them. Really. Initially, I was expecting an intrinsic sense of resistance from both of them for different reasons. However, I had to remind myself that both Johnny and Hunter had had the veil lifted through their recent experiences, and so arrived slightly more receptive than Robin had expected at least. Johnny drew his gun on Robin after Hunter's insistence, while Robin's back was turned, that he had never seen the man before, and that he might be a burglar. Robin put his hands up immediately, turning towards them, slowly, giving Johnny some more time to take in what he was seeing. Spitting image wouldn't come close to describing it. It was as if Johnny was looking at himself, although somehow Robin's face looked more weathered by war and tragedy than his own. Robin looked older, and wore clothes that didn't befit this century. Hunter took a little longer to notice the similarity thanks to Johnny's hat being pulled down over his face. However, once Johnny had removed it from astonishment more than anything, and stepped forward, placing his revolver down on the hallway counter, Hunter moving forward with him, holding Johnny's sleeve, the boy began to see as Johnny and Robin stepped into the artificial hallway light. Incredible, Johnny exclaimed. How the hell? That's an incredibly long and thrilling story. I piped up, levitating by the closed bedroom door. Be sure to listen, rate, and review on all relative podcast services, relegated to regular radio broadcasts for the benefit of those who have not yet lived to join Century 21 and beyond. My smile widened across my face, radiating a confidence I could feel Hunter responding to positively, but just like his grandson, Johnny was more suspicious. He even grabbed his gun and threatened to fire. Robin cut in. You do that, every single cop downstairs will be up here in minutes. And we don't have time for that, trust me. Why would I trust you? Johnny growled, looking from me to Robin, his eyes once again meeting his own face. Because people close to you are dying, Robin said, for reasons that you can't quite explain. 
and definitely couldn't explain to your superiors. And we can help you. Plus, that guy can fly, Hunter said, tugging at Johnny's sleeve and pointing at me. Catching my eye, Hunter got scared and looked away. Robin glared at me. I softened my smile to a less intimidating one, then uncrossed my legs and stood normally. Hunter looked up again. Are you Superman? He asked. Not even close, kid, Robin said. Redgrin uses magic, principally to annoy everyone, I'm sure of it. Comes in useful, though, and does help you to fly. Plus, Superman sucks against magic. I mean, seriously. I thought it was just kryptonite that hurt Superman, Hunter said. Just keep reading the comics, kid. You'll get there. I clicked my fingers, revealing a 21st century Elseworlds Justice League comic. I used my thoughts in tandem with my right hand to move the comic from above my grip into Hunter's own. Holy crap! Hunter exclaimed. I've never seen this issue before! Hunter began flicking through the pages. I would hope not, Robin grunted, glancing at the pages. Won't be written for another 60 plus years. Wait, what? Johnny said. Can I see that, kid? Hunter nodded, handing it over. Johnny flicked through it briefly, then checked the issue date on the back of the comic. 2013? You're from 2013? Hell no, I said. The comic is from 2013. Your detective twin over there is just about as displaced, though. Johnny handed the comic back to Hunter, now staring at Robin intently. What's it like in the future? Is it Johnny was about to finish his sentence when Hunter asked a question that everyone else in the room, even Johnny, being who he was, was entirely dreading. Have you seen my dad? I want to show him this awesome comic. There was a silence. A long one. Johnny wanted to break the news, although he didn't know the details. He just wanted to protect the kid. Robin, although he said he would do the talking, seemed to be entirely tongue-tied. And so I decided to do what I hated to call the honors. Hunter, I'm sorry. Your dad's gone. Gone? What do you mean? I sighed. The door behind me opened, not entirely revealing Caesar's corpse, just his still, graying right hand on the floor. There was no sound from Hunter. The only sound was from the displaced comic, as it floated seemingly of its own accord for a few seconds, before giving into gravity and falling to the floor. I stepped aside, letting Hunter enter at his own pace, that of lightning. There was a further silence after his footfalls slowed. Then came the cries, the cries of an orphaned lion cub. I saw tears falling from both Johnny and Robin's eyes, the same eye for each Marek, like it was a family trait. I myself could only look at the floor, and the splayed comic as the cries from the bedroom continued. Finally, they died down to mere cries or groans. My eyes kept catching the comic's front page, more specifically the series' title. I hated my stupid foreshadowing subconscious for choosing it. Hate didn't begin to describe what I was feeling. Hail and farewell, farewell. the two Mariks said in unison. I responded with the Latin translation. Ave. Atke, Vale. I continued staring down at the floor. And what was the title, my dreadful darlings? Injustice. 
Gods Among Us, Superman, no, Kal-El of Krypton's highest fall from grace. End of part three. If you're a podcast clown like I am, you must have dreamed about starting your own. Let me tell you, my dreadful darlings, it's never easy, but it's one of the best decisions I ever made. It was either that or waste away in my own subjective ascendance. Of course, it can be more than just a little overwhelming to know how to get started. Buzzsprout can help you launch your podcast professionally and in style, linking you with all of the major podcasting platforms such as Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and much, much more. Join us up in the buzzing, sprouting podcast cloud to breathe in the renowned analytical sound of the accurate analysis and promotion tools provided. Follow the link in the show notes below to start your journey and receive a $20 Amazon gift card. We're waiting for you. Buzzsprout, the best and excitingly prettiest way to start a podcast.